If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We'll be looking specifically at 15 through 17, verses 15 through 17. However, when we read in a few minutes, we're going to read a little bit more of that to help get the context of, the, uh, of our passage for this morning. Now, before we look at this text, I think there is a, a truth from Scripture that we need to make sure that we understand before we get into this text in Matthew 18. And to illustrate that, I want to uh, give you a little illustration or, or a little story or a situation. What if I told you that I was no longer a Dallas Cowboys fan, but I was a Washington Commanders fan? No, no, don't get too excited. This is an illustration. We don't need to get too excited about this. This is an illustration, okay? But what if I told you that? What if I was like, I am no longer a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm now a Washington Commanders fan or whatever your team is calling yourselves these days. What if I told you that? And then that afternoon, you were at Buffalo Wild Wings and you saw me and I, I wasn't quite being a Washington Commanders fan in the way that you thought I should. In fact, not only that, but I still have my Dallas Cowboys hat on and I still have my Dallas Cowboys jersey on. And for everything that you could see, it looked like I was cheering on not the Washington Commanders, but I was cheering on the Dallas Cowboys. Well, if you are a Washington Commanders fan, then you would, you would lovingly approach me and say, you know, Will, I, I heard you today, and you said you weren't a Dallas Cowboys fan anymore. You are a Washington Commanders fan. And and as a Washington Commanders fan myself, I have to tell you, you're doing it wrong. And, and in fact, you, you really need to be, uh, there's, there's some other ways that you can be expressing what you've already said to be true is that you're a Washington Commanders fan, not a Dallas Cowboys fan. You know, that's, that's really easy for us to talk about when it comes to what sports team that we're a fan of, but when we talk about it, as Christians, when we talk about how we live life as a Christian instead of life as an unbeliever, that's when we start to get uncomfortable. Because the truth of the matter is, is that we have been called, if we are believers in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Jesus accepts us as we are, as Pastor Nathan said last week, but he doesn't leave us as we are. We are to be changed we are to be transformed, as Paul would say, by the renewing of our minds. And so while we are called as we are, we do not stay as we are. And in fact, one of the clearest and most blunt treatments of this comes from 1 John chapter 3, where John tells the church, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, speaking of Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If we have been born again, if we have been transformed 
by our faith and trust in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, then a fundamental truth is that our relationship to sin has changed. We can no longer go on knowing about sin in our life and embracing it as if nothing has changed. Instead, we are to fight against our sin. Not perfectly, but we are to fight against it. We are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to crucify as what we heard earlier, the deeds of the flesh. We cannot live in known sin as if nothing has changed if Jesus is, in fact, our Lord and Savior. And so because that is the truth of a believer, this morning we are going to talk about how if we are in relationship to one another as a church body, then we have a responsibility to confront one another in love when we see each other straying. In gospel-shaped relationships, we correct one another in love when we stray. Well, let's read God's word this morning. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1, but again, we're going to focus on 15 through 17. Matthew 18, 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, you are good and you are holy. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and I pray that as we search the scriptures and we inquire of them, that you would reveal yourself to us. And Father, may we do all of these things in the name of your son Jesus and for his honor and glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, our main point for this morning from our text is this, a part or part of being in a gospel-shaped relationship is the responsibility to humbly, lovingly, and prayerfully call one another to repentance when we sin. Let me read that again. A part of gospel-shaped relationships is the responsibility to humbly, lovingly, and prayerfully call one another to repentance when we sin. And so as we look at this and think of this, some of you may have heard a description or a a title of what we're going to talk about today as church discipline. And so as we think about this, we need to think about these three points. And I do not have the TV on back there so I can see my points correctly. Here it is. Sorry. Never seen anyone use a remote in the middle of a sermon before, have you? Here are the three points that we are going to look at this morning. The first is, what is the purpose of discipline? The second is, who are the participants in church discipline? And then lastly, how should we practice discipline? And so first, the purpose of discipline. And we need to ask ourselves this question. Why should we call each other to repentance? Why should we call each other to repentance? Well, the first reason is for the sake of the sinner, for the sake of the one who is straying. In verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The reason that we call each other To repent is because we want to see our brothers and sisters in Christ repenting and restoring, restored to the fellowship of our 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 group, our church. We want to see them restored. We want to see them repent of their sin because that is what Jesus has called them. That is how Jesus has called them to live and to respond to the sin in their lives. And in fact, as we look at this, we will see that that the progression of how we are to confront one another continues to get more and more serious throughout the passage. But even at the most serious and the most solemn of steps that we are to take, the goal is the same. It's for the repentance and the restoration of the sinner. We see that very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in fact, you can actually put your finger there because we're going to be flipping there back and forth a little bit. But if you were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a situation where Paul is addressing the Corinthian church where a member has been caught and is living in very heinous, very unrepentant sin. 
And Paul commands that church that as they confront him, they are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so at any point as we're looking at this progression of how church discipline works or how we are to confront one another, we need to remember that the end goal is not punishment. It's not revenge against whatever they're doing. It's not any sort of self-righteous justification we are to make for ourselves, but it is to see the sinner restored. And it is to see the person who is straying repent of their sins and begin to fight their sin instead of embracing it, to live as they have been called by their Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We call each other to repentance for the purpose of seeing the sinner restored and repent, but we also call each other to repentance for the sake of the church. In that same instance in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right after the verse I just read, Paul tells this to the church, your boasting is not good. Apparently the church then, as they were welcoming this man who was living in unrepentant sin, they were boasting about it. They were saying, look, look at us. Look how tolerant we are, even of this sinner living in unrepentant sin. Paul continues, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be made, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Paul uses the, the example of yeast in dough and where if you put a little bit of yeast in dough, it affects the whole lump of dough. In the same way, a little sin left unaddressed in the church doesn't stay where it is, but it can have an effect on the whole body. When one sin is left unaddressed by the church, then others who see the sin can begin to look at it and say, that sin is unaddressed. It, may, it must be okay. Maybe I can go and do that as well. Jesus is very clear in Matthew 18 that tempting others to sin is a horrible, horrible mistake. Remember in verse 6, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. We confront sin in the church because we need the church to be whole. We need the church to not be living in unrepentant sin and for in fact the whole body. It is not only for the purity of the church, but it is also for the witness of the church. Because if we as a church are attempting to bring the gospel to the lost world that needs to know that they are sinners, that they are in desperate need of a Savior and they have no hope either now or for all of eternity without a relationship with the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we are trying to say that and yet by our actions we are saying, yeah, but this little thing that we have going on over here, you can keep that too. And we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we've began to worship this other thing and putting it in the place of most important because we're ignoring the word of God and casting that aside. We call each other to repentance because 
We love the sinner and we want to see them repent and restored. We do it also for the purity of the church to protect against temptations to sin and so that we can present a pure and clean gospel to the world. On the next, who is responsible to call a brother or sister to repentance? Who is responsible? Well, Let's look at verse 15 again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If your brother sins against you, if you are somehow made aware of an unrepentant sin in the life of a fellow church member, guess who is the one who has been appointed to go and talk to them? You, me. We are all given that responsibility. You know, we in, maybe it's just the American church, maybe it's Southern Baptist, I'm not sure what it is, but we have a tendency to have this idea that when we have a problem, we need to call the professionals in. And so we may begin to think that if we see something happening, if we see a church member living in unrepentant sin, then we can just say, oh, I'll just let somebody who's more spiritual than me deal with that. Or, or I'll just let the elders take care of that problem. That is not what this text says. It's another reason that we, we need to not think that that's what this text says because we need to know, you guys need to know, that your elders, myself, Nathan, Robert, Ned, we're not perfect. Even the spiritually mature person that you think should deal with it, they're not perfect. What if it's us that's the person you need to confront? We can't immediately go and think that someone else is going to deal with it. If we are made aware, then it is our responsibility to lovingly address the issue. We are all called to be participants in calling each other to repentance. But how? How should we practice repentance? What is the practice of discipline? How should we do it? Well, first, before we even begin to look at the different steps in 15 through 17, I think we need to realize that scripturally, especially in this chapter, there is some prep work that needs to happen before. And the first thing that we need to do before we even think about addressing sin in one another is first we need to have humble hearts. If we are going to practice church discipline, if we are going to address the sin that we are aware of, the unrepentant sin in the life of a fellow brother and sister, we need to have humble hearts. Jesus talks about humility just in the beginning of Matthew chapter 18. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility is to be something that is just natural to a Christian. But also we are humble because you and I are sinners ourselves. You and I stumble and fall. In fact, if we remember back to Matthew chapter seven when it talked about Jesus says, do not judge others lest you be judged for the judgment that is used against you or that you use against others will be used against you. Jesus is not saying there that we don't need to confront each other, but he's reminding us that as we confront each other, we are not doing it from a position of perfection. 
We are doing it as fellow stumblers and sinners and people who are fighting and trying to go and follow Christ the best we can, just like the other person. Now, Jesus also warns us there in that passage in Matthew 7 to don't pluck out the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye. So one of the other things that we need to do as we prepare, if we know of a brother or sister living in sin, is we need to examine ourselves. We need to ask the Lord, ask brothers and sisters, is there anything within me? Is there any way that I am stumbling, that I am falling? Even if, even if after examining ourselves, we may not be able to find that log, although I'm sure we will be able to find the log, as we approach the person, we need to approach them in humility saying, brother, I love you. Brother, I am just as much a sinner as you are. But brother, I see a way that you are living that is not the way that Christ has called you to live. We need to prepare ourselves by having humble hearts. The second thing we need to do is we need to have love for the sinner. We need to have love for the sinner because Jesus has love for that straying sheep. Look again at verse 12 of Matthew chapter 18. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If we confront our brothers and sisters as they stray, we must do it from a position that is full and completely of love for them and of a desire to see them restored and repentant. We cannot by any means approach them from our own point of self-righteousness. We can't approach them out of any sort of vengeance if they have specifically sinned against us. But we must approach them with love for them. And the last thing that we need to do is we need to be dependent through prayer. Verse 19, Jesus talking to the believers says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Jesus is highlighting the importance of coming to the Father in prayer. And the rest of the New Testament highlights how believers are to live lives full of prayer and dependence on the Lord. In fact, in our, in our Tuesday morning Bible study that we have with men, which by the way, all of you guys, if you're a guy, you're invited 7 a.m. 10, or uh, bleh, 7 a.m. Tuesday morning, just in a room over there. We're going through the book of Acts. And one of the things that has just been clear to all of us as we read through this book is that the church, even in its infancy, was always at every step of the way taking time to pray and to go to the Lord and ask for his help as they continued to go about the mission of the church. So we, if we are going to address sin within the body, we have to be dependent on the Lord in prayer. Well, that is the prep work that we must do. We must have humble hearts. We must have love for the sinner. And we must be dependent through prayer. Now, as we look at the specific steps that we are to take as we lovingly 
humbly confront our brothers and sisters, we need to realize that there's two classifications for, for each step. There is an informal step and there are formal steps. Informal, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, church family, I will tell you that this step is incredibly important, and this step in and of itself is where most church discipline should begin and end. Why? Because if we are addressing a believer who is living in sin, then a believer, when they are confronted with sin, should hear what they are sinning, how they are sinning, and they should repent. They should begin to fight against whatever sin that is, and they should change. And so this is where each and every step, or this is where nearly every step of discipline, nearly every act of lovingly calling one another to repentance should begin and end. And notice that it says that you should do it. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, Jackson and I like to play with Legos. You're just thinking, where in the world did this come from? Jackson and I like to play with Legos, and we like together to put together sets that he's gotten. Now, if we are putting it together, and all of a sudden he puts a wrong piece on the Lego, or he's just not following the instructions, I don't go immediately to Kim and say, can you believe what our son has just done? Can you believe that he thought that the three-piece was supposed to go there when it was really the four-piece? I don't go to Ellie as soon as he just takes the instructions and throws it away and says, "Ah, I'm just going to do this my own way. I don't go to Ellie and say, Ellie, your brother, man, your brother, he's just a problem. And he's trying to go about building this Lego set the only way. No, I don't do any of those things. Jackson and I, we get together, he puts the wrong piece on, I'm like, but that's, that's not what this set says. You're supposed to put this piece on. Or if he throws it away, it's like, son, we are never going to get this built if you're trying to build it all on your own without any of the instructions that they've given to us. Same, if we know of a brother or sister who is living in unrepentant sin, we don't go to another church member and say, can you believe what they're doing? Can you believe the way that they're living their lives? No. No, that's called gossip, and that's something we need to be confronted with. We go to them and them alone, and we, with love, humbly hearts, we tell them, brother, sister, you have been redeemed by your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he has called you to live a different way. And in love, I tell you that what you're doing now is not right whatever the case may be. And again, that is where most, most of these confrontations should end. With a confronting, with a sin, and repentance. But sin dies hard. And sometimes we are stubborn. Sometimes we don't listen. Well, Jesus prepares us for that. But he, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus is actually referencing here the old covenant law where no charge was to be admitted against someone without one or two or more witnesses. There must be other people. And so that is not only to protect and confirm the the charge against the person, but that's also to protect the accused from being falsely accused. Because let's be honest, church, we may think that a brother or sister is sinning, but not again, we've admitted we are not perfect. We could be doing it incorrectly. And so bringing others along with us ensures that we are not confronting another one as we should not, but it also confirms and brings more people along to encourage the one who is straying to repent and to stop living in sin and to begin to fight against it instead. We have moved here into more formal discipline when we bring others along with us. Well, it gets even more formal. If he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. If someone is being so obstinate and refusing to repent of their sin, then it is time to call in the whole body. It is time to call in the whole body so that the whole body may begin to pray and to impress upon the one who is straying that they are going where they should not go. They are living and they are practicing sin and that is not what Christ has called them or saved them to do. They need to repent. And the final and the most difficult sometimes for us to think about is the final step of formal discipline. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is when the church who has impressed upon this person, who has pleaded with this person to repent, can say, because you are living in this unrepentant sin where you are blatantly ignoring the word of God, then we can only conclude we don't know your heart, but every bit of evidence that you are providing to us right now says that you were never a believer in the first place. And we urge you, brother, sister, repent. Repent. Follow after Jesus. He is the only one who may save you and you must repent of this sin. You must stop letting this sin be the idol and God of your life and you must repudiate it and you must follow Jesus and trust in him and put to death the sin within you through his Holy Spirit working within you. It changes every conversation we have that person from the priority being fellowship as a brother and sister in Christ to sharing the gospel with them to the same attitude that we should have with every unbeliever that we come in contact with that we can't just have a regular conversation with them without the thought in our mind and it should come out of our lips too that you are a sinner and you need to be saved and Jesus is the one who can save you through his life through his death on the cross where he shed his blood for you through his burial and his resurrection put your faith and trust in him And he will save you. 
that must be the priority of those who must, we must treat as a Gentile and a tax collector. And remember that even in this step, even in this step, as hard as it may be to tell someone we are not even sure if you are a believer anymore, that it is for the good of that person so that they can hear the truth and they can be, repent, they can be repentant and they can be restored. Remember how Jesus treated tax collectors and sinners. He loved them. And he told them to repent and to follow him. He told them to go and sin no more. When we come to this last and most desperate and difficult step, we must know that it does not mean we stop loving that person. It means we love them all the more. And when we think about this, it, this is difficult. And it's hard to wrap our minds around how we can still love this person and yet take this step with them in, while they live in unrepentant sin. But can I just remind you from Scripture? Let's think again about 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, this young man living in heinous sin, having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. Paul says to deliver his flesh to Satan. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. They took this last and most desperate step. But what is the result? Now we're not 100% sure of this as we look at 2 Corinthians, but we're fairly sure, and most scholars would agree, that when in 2 Corinthians, Paul says something about a sinner, he's talking about this young man in particular, when he says this, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Church, taking this step with someone who is living in unrepentance sin may be harsh. It may be really difficult to swallow, but the biblical example that we have is of someone who this step was taken and yet they repented. If you want to hear an actual story, we were talking in our elders meeting this week. Ned has a great story, not of in a church, but in another situation where he had a difficult job of calling someone to repent and taking even some steps just like this and later was thanked by that person for Ned's faithfulness even in that situation. Church family, this is hard. This is difficult. But if we are going to be in a gospel-shaped relationship with one another, if we are going to be a part of a church together, then it is our job to lovingly, humbly, and prayerfully 
call one another to repentance when we sin and call each other to live lives that Jesus has called us to live. Let's pray together.